0: Welcome to the Ollie at WVU podcast, Get to Know Each Other. I'm your host for this episode, Michelle Klishes, and today we're talking with Annette Tanner, an Ollie member in Morgantown and also a Master Gardener and Master Naturalist. We discuss the Master Naturalist program, how her childhood shaped her interests as an adult, knitting, and how to make the world a better place. Thanks again to Annette for agreeing to come on the podcast with me, and I hope you enjoy listening to this interview as much as we enjoyed recording it. Welcome, Annette. I am delighted to have you here with me today. I would like you, uh, if you don't mind, to just give a little introduction about who you are, um, how the people at Ollie might recognize you, and how people at Ollie might know you.
1: Well, um, I have lived in Morgantown since 1964, grew up in Preston County, but uh, made my way to a job at uh, University Hospital in Morgantown, which is what brought me here to begin with. And I've had, um, I guess, uh, the people I know at Ollie are, number one, people that I used to work with, medical technologists. Uh, there are several involved with OLLI, and I do see them occasionally. And since I also do a lot of volunteering in the area, I uh, know people that way too that I probably wouldn't cross paths with otherwise. And I attend OLLI classes as much as I can, mostly in the winter when I'm not out busy doing other things. And um, I love the classes at Ollie, and I see people there that I uh, Often see and so Ollie's been a great a great way for me to get to know other people in my community. So um, basically, I'm I'm I've been retired for many years and don't have a job. So I uh, spend my time trying to learn things, <laughs> which Ollie is very great at helping me with. Well, I hope we are. So yes. where do you, where do you volunteer? Well, um, I belong to I'm involved with two different organizations that require volunteer hours. One is the local master gardeners, they require volunteer hours, and the other program I'm involved with is the master naturalist program which also requires volunteer hours. Uh, So, um, I do a lot of my volunteering at the botanic garden because they have gardens there, and I love gardening, and so I help as much as I can with not just the gardens, but also events that they hold in normal times. They're not having events these days, but but um, I do help with events and with uh, the gardens there, and um So that's mostly where I do my volunteering.
0: So what does it being a master, I I know several people who are in the Master Gardener program, what is being, what do you do to become a Master Naturalist?
1: Well, the Master Naturalist program is an outreach of the State Department of Natural Resources. And their goal is to educate people as much as they can about the natural world around us. And uh, so we attend classes. There are a required number of classes that we have to attend. Also optional elective classes that we can go to. So we attend all these mini classes. And then another requirement is the volunteer hours, which I mentioned. And then as part of that program, you have to do a short, like 10-minute presentation on some nature-related subject that you're interested in. Uh, that's part of the outreach, teaching people to teach other people kind of uh, goal that they have. And the classes are on a wide range of topics, everything nature-related, including geology, which you might not think, but it is. It's the ground we walk on. It's yes. Yeah what determines the pH of the soil and what plants grow there and so on. Geology is fascinating. I never had it in college, so I mean, it was all new to me. And um, and we're fortunate to live in a university town, a land-grant university, which has an extension program. And so we have access to professors, just like Ollie does, people who are really experts in their field. And they are a lot of the teachers in these classes. So we get, we get great instruction. There's a also a state conference just like the master gardener program has a state conference moves around the state so we get to explore various other parts of the state that we might not otherwise visit we do a lot of field trips it's it's a wonderful program i really really love it i wish everybody was in them but of course it's time consuming that's a lot of hours and you have to have the time and the physical capability to do what you need to do to be in this so I, you,
0: you need to send me that. Uh, if they have a website, you need to send that to me. And I will definitely add that in the podcast because that was, to- that's totally my jam right there. <laughs>
1: yes, 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 yes. You're that's- a natural for that program.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I definitely need to look into that. Well,
1: uh, usually the classes in a normal year start in March in and they go, <laughs> they go through the summer and then into the fall. And then they end in like late October. And then over the winter months, they have a book club which meets, and they have a committee that chooses which books they're going to discuss, and they're all nature-related books. And then, I mean, you, you're you not required to join the book club, but if you want to, you can. And now, how it's going to be next year, with it depends on the COVID situation, probably, mm-hmm. but... Um, And usually there's a short announcement in the newspaper, the local newspaper, about when the classes are going to start. There's also a website that, uh, but I will let you know when I hear whatever I hear next spring. So
0: excellent. And I will, I will try and look up that website so that I can look into more of it and maybe make (laughs) that available for other people. What kind of books do you read as part of an internationalist book club? I mean, fiction, nonfiction, everything, anything?
1: It's nonfiction. It's it's books on people who are doing research, like books on how the way trees communicate with each other. Who knew that trees could communicate with other trees? But they can. And so it's subjects like that. I mean, it's a wide variety of topics. In fact, last year, one of the books was on ancient civilizations in the Americas, and like the aztecs the mayans the the people who even preceded those and this the ancient sites that are being uncovered in central america and south america and so on that was fascinating because i visited some of those sites oh did you wow (laughs) i i need to
0: get out more Besides, well, I need to get outside of what You get out a lot,
1: Michelle.
0: <laughs> I, I need to get outside of our state border. <laughs> stuff like that. I love stuff like that. And I bet the places in the Americas are probably not nearly as overdone as the, or Overvisited maybe is the places in
1: Europe. Yeah, well, some of them are located in very remote areas in there in rainforests and there are mosquitoes and there are other things that you have to con- be concerned about when you visit these places, although some like in Mexico Chichen Itza is a pretty highly visited Mayan, ancient Mayan site. But studying these ancient sites, they've learned a lot about the way people lived back then, and the agriculture, like corn and tomatoes and so on, are native to this part of the world, and, and they were uh, developed by these native people into the kinds of food we recognize today. It never fails to amuse me
0: how we tend to associate like potatoes with the Irish and tomatoes with the Italians when those vegetables wouldn't even have been there until the discovery of the new world by the, or not the discovery until the Europeans caught up with the rest of us. (laughs) (laughs) So let's see, Um, one of the things that I think people, how people might know you is that you're part of the yarn arts group. You're usually there every Monday. So
1: how did you learn to knit? Well, my mother didn't knit, but I had an aunt who was very good at it and also a beautiful crocheter and I would watch her. Well, I didn't spend a lot of time with her and so she never taught me to knit, but I always had an interest in it growing up. And then when I went away to college, I uh, went to school at Alderson Broadis in the town of Philippi. So I went to the little five and ten in Philippi, which we had five and tens in those days. Um, and I the little bit of extra money I had, I spent on a little pamphlet, Learn to Knit, it was called, or something like that. And I bought a skein of yarn and a couple of knitting needles. And I took them back to the dorm. And I looked at the pictures and followed the instructions and basically practiced until I figured it out. And there were instructions in this book on how to make a scarf. So uh, once I learned how to do the stitches, I used that skein of yarn to make a scarf. And that was my first knitting project. And it just went on from there. So did you... (laughs) Did you keep the scarf for yourself or did you give it to someone or? Well, I kept it for a long time, but eventually I decided the color, it was kind of a lime green color, which I look horrible in. I didn't know (laughs) that in those days, but I I finally got rid of the scarf.
0: (laughs) So do you, do you knit for yourself? I know a lot of people knit um, to give gifts to other people or to make things for babies and stuff like that. What are your knitting projects tend
1: to be? Mostly I knit for myself. Yeah. I do know people who who knit for charitable organizations, lap roads, robes for nursing homes, for instance. Mm -hmm. But I don't do that because uh, the yarns that I enjoy working with require special care. You can't throw them in the washer and dryer. And I know that most people wouldn't understand that. And so I tend to, mostly I knit for myself, occasionally uh, baby gifts and so on, but mostly for me. (laughs) That's (laughs) totally all right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well for me knitting is I go to a magazine stand and I see all these magazines on mindfulness mm-hmm. escaping your problems and focusing on some other thing to get make all the negative stuff go away and for me knitting is my mindfulness uh if I'm doing something complicated I have to really focus on it I have to really concentrate yeah. on it and it's my mindfulness thing so and then you end up with something hopefully beautiful, hopefully, and useful and um, that you can wear. <laughs> so, so it's, um, I like it a lot. That's actually,
0: I hadn't thought about it that way because I know that people have tried to make me meditate before. And as I am physically incapable of sitting still, it's <laughs> super difficult for me. So I tend to use walking as kind of a, a meditation. Sure. Knitting, Yeah, the fact that you have to concentrate on something, you know, I guess baking is like that in some ways too, you know, it, it takes you out of your mind and focusing on something outside of your
1: brain. It, which is a very good thing to do, a very healthy thing to do. Especially yes. right now. <laughs> Especially right now, yes.
0: What do you
1: think is the most important thing you've learned in your life? Oh my goodness, so many things. I think a lot of it goes back to my childhood. My The way I grew up basically formed me, even though I didn't know it at the time. I didn't realize this until thinking back on the way I grew up and how it's influenced what I think, what I do, what I believe. I grew up with parents who were young during the Great Depression. They both grew up on farms. They were very self-reliant, as self-reliant as they could be. And because it was food security, you know, they grew as much of their own food as they could. Um, My father was, he was educated as a teacher, an elementary school teacher, and he was teaching me constantly. We would go, if we were out in the woods or any place outdoors at my grandparents' farm, there was a trout stream that ran through the farm and he would go fishing there and um, he would point out, he knew the names of the wildflowers, he knew the names of most of the trees, he could name a lot of the birds that were flying over. He was just interested and good at that. And he was self-taught, you know, he, it was his own childhood that formed him and he was always teaching me. And I didn't realize at the time how that was forming my life. And I never escaped from that early childhood beginning. Um, I didn't learn until I was older and out on my own how much better tomatoes that you grew taste than the tomatoes you buy at the grocery store <laughs> yeah <laughs> when I was a kid I was in I was required to help in the garden and I didn't want to believe me I would rather be out climbing trees or playing with my friends than hoeing the corn or weeding or tying up the tomatoes but I didn't have a choice so yeah. I had to do it and then um, I learned I was learning but I wouldn't, I was a kid. I wasn't thinking, oh, why? Oh, you're going to enjoy that you did this someday. No. (laughs) You're thinking, uh, why do I have to do this? (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't until I was out on my own, uh, living in apartments, um, that I realized what I was missing by having to buy all my food at the grocery store. And so after my husband and I decided that we needed to move it find a house because we had one child and another one on the way and we needed a house instead of an apartment. So one of my top priorities was finding a house with enough space that I could have a vegetable garden. And we did. And I started my garden and of course the deer were eating everything. So I had to have (laughs) a fence put up. And, um, And I realized that even though I knew some things, I didn't know as much as I... Needed to know, and yeah. that's what got me into the Master Gardener program. Because you take classes and you learn a lot of things about not just food production, but flowers and trees and all kinds of things, shrubs, so and soils. Um, and so, uh, and I'm still learning. You know, there's always more to learn. That's that's one of the things that I've noticed is, is that the more I
0: learn, the more I know that I don't know. So exactly. learning is the discovery of the giant
1: holes of ignorance. <laughs> I totally agree I that's uh, master naturalists have certainly taught me that how how much how much more I'm learning really lets me know how little I know, actually. so and we're <laughs> we live in an age when we have access to a lot of information, not just going to a bookstore but online information yeah. and websites and so on, which is an advantage in a lot of ways
0: it I, that is actually when I take kids out into the woods one of the things I like to do is well I have the little plastic identification sheets but I also have an iNaturalist uh, app on my phone I, I well what flower do you think this is and now uh, or what mushroom do you think this is and that that you know we'll take a picture of it and then they'll go back and they'll try and match it in the app it's lovely to see it's you know how excited they are in trying to guess what it is that they saw I mean it yeah. Mm -hmm. it's really just a lot of fun to do stuff like that
1: right and one thing i've learned is how complicated it can be to identify something i mean there's a wildflower that grows by the bridge if you're crossing the deckers creek by marilla park across Mm -hmm. from the dmv Mm -hmm. there's a wildflower there that blooms every year in august basically. And Uh it's tall, fairly tall. It's like maybe two and a half, three feet tall. And it has these beautiful golden yellow blossoms all over it. And I always, every year I see that and I think, gosh, what is that? What is that? So one year I parked my car and I broke off a stem and took it home to try to figure out with my wildflower field guide to Mm -hmm. what is this flower? And honestly, I never figured it out. I mean, the details. I did manage to learn that it is a member of the wild sunflower family, (laughs) but which member? And it's the same with goldenrods. There are so many of them, and trying to key them out and figure out which exact goldenrod that is can be very challenging.
0: Let's see. um, One last question see what is your best tip for making the
1: world a better place because we oh all gosh. need that right now there's a, that's a very complicated question and i was thinking about that i realized that it depends on the time in which you live if we were fighting world war ii mm-hmm. what would be oh well let's get rid of all wars and wars but for me right now what would make the world a better place? A couple of things come to mind. One is we need to sharpen our critical thinking skills. Mm-hmm. We need to learn to not blindly accept everything we hear or read. Mm-hmm. We need to learn to consider the source and the possible motivations that that person might have for saying what they say. And maybe they believe what they're saying. And maybe the, they there's some other reason they're saying it. I mean, we need to be a little skeptical about what we're reading and hearing. Uh, I've heard people say, oh, so-and-so said that, he or she wouldn't say it if it wasn't true. <laughs> well, <laughs> You know, I mean, we need to be more careful about blindly accepting whatever we yeah, read or see. very uh, much so. <laughs> <laughs> so, and the other thing, that I think, for my personal point of view, we need to be we need to be more conscious of, aware of our connection to and dependence on the natural world around us. Somebody famous once said, "Everything is connected to everything else," and we humans tend to think we don't need to worry about everything else. We're the only things that really matter. Uh, but (laughs) that's not true (laughs) no it's not true i mean the environment around us supplies the air we breathe the water we drink the food we eat all the things that are necessary for life for us and if we don't take care of it we're endangering not just other creatures but ourselves and so yeah um I'm concerned about, I mean, it's been in the news that honeybees are dying. Um, Birds worldwide are declining in number based on bird counts that happen. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, The monarch butterfly is being considered for listing as endangered. Uh, And this is all human activity that's, that's causing these things. It's not Mother Nature doing it. I mean, these things, creatures have been common for how many thousands of years, and now they're in decline. Lightning bugs are in decline. And the reasons, there are a lot of reasons, but habitat loss, pesticide use, things that humans are doing that are causing these creatures not to be able to survive. Introduce diseases from other parts of the world introduced um, pests from other parts of the world <laughs> exactly our bats the bats that live in caves are dying from white nose syndrome because and that was brought here from europe by a, according to what i've read cavers from europe white nose syndrome occurs in europe but the bats there have lived with it for a long time and they're pretty much immune to it but our bats had never encountered it before and they are not immune to it so when the cavers from europe came to explore our caves, they brought their caving clothes, which they never washed, <laughs> and so the organism that causes white nose syndrome got transferred to our caves and is killing our bats. And bats eat a lot of mosquitoes, so I, I think we need to be more aware of and concerned about our effect on the natural world around us.
0: Yeah, I, I I'm in your, I'm in that camp with you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this has been marvelous, Annette. I have enjoyed this so much talking with you
1: today. Well, thank you. Thank um, you for asking me.
0: <laughs> oh, I, of course. I, you know, I see you at yarn art, so you know it's nice to actually just have a one-on-one with you.
1: Well, and I've really very much enjoy reading the pieces you write for the Ollie newsletter that about the places you've explored and 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 gone. And I'm envious. I used to do a lot of hiking. I'm not doing that so much anymore. But I used to in younger years and exploring caves and canoeing rivers and all of that. So you're bringing back memories for me, too. Thank you. Well, I just put a piece up this morning. (laughs) Oh, Okay. Can't wait.
0: Again, this was Annette Tanner, who was talking with me. And I thank you so much for joining us today.